morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Friday, May the 13th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. The record drought in Ethiopia has led to a dramatic increase in desperate parents marrying off their children. That is according to the UN Children's Fund. Education is the key uh, to combat, you know, the, the, the early child marriage. You know, to keep them busy uh, at schools. You know, we tell parents that, you know, investing in child is something that, you know, that can help them to have a good returns. And this week in Malawi, the parliament started conducting public inquiries into the proposal to abolish the death penalty. As a church, uh, the stand is that uh, we need to abolish that law in the sense that uh, the church mainly uh, preaches about the sanctity of life, that uh, every life is uh, very important. And authorities in Nigeria, Sokoto State, have ordered the shutdown of a college of education after a female student was mobbed and killed over alleged blasphemy. We have those stories plus sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the record drought in Ethiopia has led to a dramatic increase in desperate parents marrying off their children, says the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, with reported child marriages more than doubling so far this year. Aid groups are trying to get much-needed water and other help to drought-hit families to try to curb that trend and protect girls. Linda Giftash reports from Gode in Ethiopia. Unable to feed themselves or their families, people in Ethiopia's Somali region are fleeing to displacement camps in search of aid. They are also using any means to improve their economic situation. Nasteho Bahar Abdi married at 14, but she had to remarry this year because her first husband failed to support her and two daughters. She asks what else could she do. She says she lost all she had. She has no skills, no work. All that she had was taken by the drought. She did not get an education. She says her children are now suffering. Girls getting married before they are 18 is common culturally throughout the country. UNICEF says 40% of Ethiopian women were married at under 18. Faced with economic pressures from the drought, experts say marrying daughters can be a form of relief to families by giving them one less mouth to feed and gaining a bride price. Utpal Moitra is UNICEF Somali region chief field officer. He says there's a spike in such practices in wardas or in the administrative districts. Where the drought had hit and was sort of notified as the hotspot wardas, we saw like 63% increase. Of course, these are sort of anecdotal what we picked up from the different waridas and talking to the communities. But the fact that that number itself gives a pretty scary situation about children. UNICEF says surveys suggest child marriages have doubled in the region, but cases could be even higher. Families do not openly discuss the issue and marriages aren't formally registered because legally the minimum age for marriage in Ethiopia is 18. Advocates such as Moitra say raising awareness about the risk to girls may help to discourage the practice. We are seeing where young mothers, you know, where the, the malnutrition levels are very high and the children giving they are, the children that they are giving birth to are also sort of suffering from acute malnutrition. Keeping children in the classroom may also help protect girls from early marriage and pregnancy. 
Alanur Muhammad with Save the Children stresses the importance of education. Education is the key uh, to combat, you know, the, the, the early child marriage. You know, keep them busy uh, at schools. You know, we tell parents that, you know, investing in child is something that, you know, that can help them to have a good returns than having these short times, you know, economic benefits from marriage, you know, transactions, you know. Abdi, who recently remarried, learned to raise livestock rather than going to school. Those skills have limited her and others like her amid the drought. She says she wants a different future for her daughters. She says she's planning to teach her children, take them to school when they reach school age. She says if Allah blesses her with wealth, she would love to see her children educated. Abdi says she also encourages other girls in her community to go to school rather than wed. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Godet, Ethiopia. In Malawi, Parliament has started conducting public inquiries into the proposal to abolish the death penalty in the country. Various stakeholders, including legal experts, religious leaders and traditional leaders, are taking part. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre in Malawi. The move comes a month after the legislature asked its legal affairs committee to solicit views from the public on the matter before it changes the law. Peter Dimba is the chairperson for the legal affairs committee of Malawi's parliament. He says the majority supports the abolition of the death sentence. Uh, we had uh, a cross-section of um, you know, stakeholders. We had chiefs there representing the people from the villages. We had people that are affected in one way or another with the death penalty. We had uh, you know, pastors, sheikhs. We had uh, CSOs you know, working with the people on the ground. And 99.9% uh, of those that came our opinion that the uh, death penalty has to go. Malawi has been under pressure from both local and global rights groups like Amnesty International to abolish the death penalty to set a good example as a signatory to the Declaration of Universal Human Rights, which rejects the death penalty. Court records show that 27 people are under death sentence in Malawi. According to Amnesty International, the country last carried out an execution in 1992 when 12 people were hanged. Last year, Malawi's Supreme Court judge abolished the punishment after he heard the petition from a convicted murderer. However, the court reversed the decision four months later, saying the judge who abolished the sentence only expressed his personal opinion and the death penalty remained applicable. Boniface Chibwana represented the Catholic Church during the inquiry. As a church, uh, the stand is that uh, we need to abolish that law in the sense that uh, the church mainly uh, preaches about the sanctity of life, that uh, every life is uh, very important. And uh, we have to know that uh, each and every right that we talk of, um, it emanates that uh, a person has life. Various human rights campaigners say the penalty contradicts the right to life as indicated in Malawi constitution. However, Assistant Commissioner for the Malawi Police Service, Levson Mangani, says views should be solicited from ordinary people and not just from their representatives. Mangani says the police have been going into the communities daily to rescue murder suspects from mob attacks because many people in the villages still believe in an eye for an eye. But lawmaker Dimba says the problem is lack of funds to go into rural areas. 
But also I wanted to say that research has actually shown that in countries where death penalty was actually repealed, for instance, Mozambique, South Africa, and other countries, it did not really cause a spike in the cases of uh, homicide or murder. Uh, contrary, in other countries like South Africa, after abolition of the death sentence, there was actually a reduction in murder cases by 4%. Dimba says his legal committee will present the corrected views to the lawmakers during the July sitting of Parliament for further input. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Tanzanian's President Samia Suluhu Hassan was on a state visit to Uganda this week at the invitation of Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. The two leaders discussed issues regarding bilateral relations, including the implementation of infrastructural development in the areas of energy and public transportation. Reporter Mugume Davis Rwakarinji has more from Kampala, Uganda. Tanzania President Samia Suluhu Hassan was received in Uganda on Tuesday, making it the third time she's visiting the country after she was sworn in as Tanzania elected leader last year. Addressing media in a joint press conference, President Sulu Hassan said she was in Uganda to enhance bilateral relations between the two East African countries. She said this is particularly necessary because of the global challenges brought about by COVID-19 and Russia's war on Ukraine. As brotherly neighbors, we are bound by common destiny. This requires closer cooperation to exchange experiences on how to serve our countries better. And in that regard, I'm here to strengthen our relations. The two countries are engaged in various multi-million dollar projects, such as an oil pipeline that is expected to transport Uganda's crude oil. Suru said other projects are in the areas of energy and transport. We were very satisfied by the political stability that our countries enjoy. On the other hand, we have uh, discussed how we could further work together to enhance peace and security to ensure that the whole East African region continues to be stable. Ugandan President Yuri Museveni had this to say about his meetings with his Tanzanian counterpart. Our work is mainly to concentrate on security, infrastructure, and the economy. Okelo Oriem, Uganda's Foreign Affairs Minister, read a communique after the two leaders' address. The two heads of state directed the relevant ministers to meet frequently to address the non-tariff barriers and find solutions to challenges related to trade. They directed that these decisions be implemented within one month. It is expected that bilateral projects between the two countries will employ thousands of people from both countries. For Daybreak Africa, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarindin Kampala, Uganda. Debrek Africa continues. Authorities in Nigeria's Sokoto state have ordered the shutdown of a college of education after a female student was mobbed and killed over alleged blasphemy. Timothy Obiezu reports. Sokoto State Commissioner for Information Isa Banjini Galadane told journalists on Thursday that the state governor has ordered the immediate closure of the Shehu Shagari College of Education and that authorities are investigating the incident. Armed security officials escorted students out of the school, many of them carrying their belongings. 
According to local reports, an angry mob of students pounced on a female student on Thursday for allegedly making blasphemous comments about the Muslim prophet Muhammad in a WhatsApp group. The crowd stoned, flogged and set her ablaze near the school in a viral video that has triggered outrage and raised religious freedom concerns. Cletus Alu, a former official with the Christian Association of Nigeria, CAN, says issues of religious extremism have worsened on the President Muhammad Buhari, a Muslim. Things have changed for worse. Yeah, things have changed for worse for the coming of Buhari into power. Religious bigotry becomes a trademark. We are so divided along ethnicity, along religious line, and along regional lines. The Nigerian president is yet to respond to the incident. But the Sultan of Sokoto considered the spiritual leader of Nigeria's Muslims condemned the attack in a statement. The gruesome killing coincided with a report by news agency Sahara Reporters showing footage of the execution of 20 Christians by terrorists. The date on the footage could not be immediately verified. Last month, a court in northern Kano State sentenced the Nigerian effaced to 24 years in prison for blasphemy. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. And now to some art news. In recent years, Africa's art market has seen unprecedented growth due to an increase in interest by local and international collectors. This global attention can be measured in the number of art exhibits featuring African art held by world-famous galleries in major cities like London. Art collectors say that as much as they are interested in traditional African art, there has been more focus in contemporary African art created by either emerging digital artists or well-known painters and sculptors. Ken Wadobu is a Nigerian multidisciplinary artist whose conceptual works explore black identity. I reached him at his Lego studio to talk about his current exhibition titled A New Perspective, focusing on black migration. He starts off by explaining his definition of the concept African art. Is African art art that looks like African art or is African art art that comes from Africa? And that's a very huge conversation and it's a huge debate that uh, many art historians, many art critics and institutional bodies are actually having now. African art is basically art that comes from Africa and basically not the aesthetics of the art because the aesthetics of the art can be whatever the artist choose to display on the canvas and value comes from the conversations that is being you know, shared on the canvas. So. That is Ken Wadobu, a young Nigerian artist based in Lagos. In Nigeria, one of the most vibrant art markets on the continent, young artists like Ken are attracting global attention because of how they are using new art forms to reframe old narratives about their communities. Ken is currently holding his first solo exhibition in his home city of Lagos. He says that his exhibition titled A Different Perspective seeks to tell a different side of the story often told about Lagos. You cannot completely understand a story by just looking at one perspective. You have to actually you know, consider other perspectives of that story before you can get the truth out of that story. So a different perspective is like a conversation about what Lagos is, what Nigeria is, how we live in Nigeria. 
and he's t- telling you that you know there is one story about corruption and the rest about what you think of Africa and Nigeria. But there's another story about the lifestyle, how we live, how we love, how we come in together. And that's what I was trying to show in this, in this exhibition. The exhibit is a series of paintings inspired by Ken's experiences growing up in Nigeria. But as thousands of young Africans his age embark on a risky voyage to cross the Mediterranean on their way to Europe each year, he not only wishes to start a conversation about the complexities of the migrant crisis, but to also bring attention to black voices across the diaspora that are influencing global culture. He calls his art technique contemporaryism. So contemporaryism is basically contemporary art and hyperrealism. Because I, I, I love the concept of hyperrealism, the idea of creating something real right, on a paper or on a canvas or whatever medium you use. Right? And still, I like the fluidity that contemporary art gives. So I tried to you know, put, see how I can merge these two ideas together to form like a new idea. I started to call myself contemporaryism because I realized that a lot of people did not know who I was. <laughs> people called me hyperrealist. People called me. Um, there was just a lot of um, genre of art that I was practicing in different news um, outlets. So I decided, you know what? Let me just, you know, save everybody the stress and actually just coin a word called contemporaryism, which basically when you think about it institutionally, it actually has a, a very big impact on, on the way we look at hyperrealism and the way we look at contemporary art as well. Even though painting is the focus of Nadobu's art, the centerpiece of his current exhibition is his new installation, Jesus of Lubeck, which reflects upon the history of slave trade and the migration of present day. Kenya saw a jump in cases of gender-based violence during its COVID-19 lockdowns, which heightened social and financial stress. To address the problem, Kenyan authorities are turning to the dramatic arts. Victoria Amunga reports from Nairobi. All right, all right. I've just opened a new club here in Westland, and I need only one thing, skimply dressed women to... At the Kenya's National Theatre in Nairobi, some 65 young people are putting their acting skills to use as part of Kenya's latest strategy to educate the public about the evils of gender-based violence. Titled A Little Girl's Worth, the one-hour play by Kenyan playwrights Derek Waswa and Tomia Sheriff is a new production co-sponsored by the Ministry of Public Service, Youth and Gender Affairs. It tells a story of how, despite their extraordinary contribution in society, women suffer disproportionately. Derek Waswa, the play's director, says the goal is to sensitize the public on violence against women, which he says stems from the cultural beliefs that a woman is part of a man's possession. Basically, people are blaming the violence and not looking at the cause. Basically, what we're trying to explain is the cultural, the African cultural nature has made a woman to be submissive. From the Bible, you're told, submit to your husband as it is to the Lord. And then in this African setup where a man has to pay dowry for you, 
it means they're technically purchasing you. A February 2022 report by the Kenya Federation of Female Lawyers, FIDA Kenya, shows that cases of gender-based violence rose sharply during the pandemic to a point where they made up nearly half the cases reported to the Federation. Authorities attribute the rise in these cases to the pandemic and the economic losses it caused. The play premiered this month with a three-night run to audiences of 350 at the National Theatre. Audience members like Samson Osoro expressed hope that the dramatic arts will help change men's mindset. This play will go a long, a long way to also sensitize, especially the men who may be so unwelcome or who may be harsh to our, to our ladies, to know that ladies are also very important as men are. As a father who has a, a lady, I would really wish my daughter to be treated in a better way than maybe during the times of our mother and our grandmother. Jerry Migui is the founder of Usikimi, an organization working to end sexual and gender-based violence in Kenya. The group's name means Speak Up in Swahili. Migui told VOA that programs such as door-to-door campaigns will reach more people but say the play is a step in the right direction. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. Now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. We go to Abuja in Nigeria with Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sport in South Africa, where the South African Football Association has been accused of buying votes ahead of its elections at the end of next month. The Democratic Alliance, one of the main opposition parties in South Africa, lambasted the South African Football Association's decision to award its national executive members over $1.3 million as honorarium. The association reportedly gave each of the 14 NEC members $15,000 each last week for their supposedly professional services, despite struggling to meet its own financial obligations. The Democratic Alliance Member of Parliament, Shepo Winston Moholongo, has questioned the timing of awarding the bonuses. It comes just ahead of the association's presidential elections at the end of next month. We want administrators that will put South Africa first, not self-centered administrators. No, 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 to selfishness and self-interest. Staying with football news, the Egyptian Football Association on Thursday said it has placed a request to host the finals of the Afghan Champions League, which was handed to Morocco by the Confederation of Afghan Football earlier this week. The problem arose when CAF decided to give Morocco the honor of hosting the final for the second year in a row after Senegal withdrew its request. The stakes over who will host the final are all the more higher for Egypt after the first leg semi-final of the tournament, which indicates that the final may be between Egypt's Al-Hakli and Morocco's Wydad Athletic. And now to Ghana, where Shooting Stars FC, a professional Ghanaian football club, will partner with German football giants Borussia Dortmund to play a select African legends team at the Accra Sports Stadium. The game, which will come up on the 11th of June, will have Ghana's football legend Abedi Pele 
in action. Austin J.J. Okocha from Nigeria will join Ghanaian former football stars on the tour by Borussia Dortmund to Ghana. Asamoah Gyan, former Ghanaian Blackstars captain, and Charles Kwabla Akuno, a former Ghanaian international footballer and one-time manager of the Ghana national team, both shared their thoughts on the tour, which is Dortmund's way of increasing its presence on the African continent. There are a lot of um, legends coming up. You know, they are coming to Ghana to grace the occasion. And um, me, being one of the um, African players, to be part of this event, you know, um, I feel honored, I feel lucky to be part of this event. I can't wait. I can't wait for 11th of June. I played in Germany for a long time, and so I, I love the spirit of the Germans and how they do their thing. So the fact that they've taken this initiative is something uh, very, very good. In swimming news, ahead of the Commonwealth Games, eight swimmers have been selected by the Kenya Swimming Federation to represent the country at the Commonwealth Games. The swimmers were selected after the long course national swimming championships that were staged at the Kasarani Stadium last week. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. And remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Till next time, I'm Jackson Vungu.